0: Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. This week on the show, we have Michael Denzel Smith, author of Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching. The main question that we struggle with in this episode is, how do you learn to be a black man in America? So tune in and enjoy. So Michael Denzel Smith is a nobler fellow at the Nation Institute and a contributing writer for the Nation magazine. He's also written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Salon, Feministing The Guardian, The Root, uh, The Grio, Think Progress, and The Huffington Post. And he's been featured and he's a featured commenter, commentator on NPR, BBC Radio, CNN, MSNBC, Al Jazeera America, HuffPost Live, and a number of other radio and television programs. His book *Invisible Man* got the whole world watching. A young black man's education is out in June. So welcome, Michael.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah. It's quite an impressive resume. I mean you're <laughs> you're just a year or two older than Kyle and I, so uh you know, I'm blown away by how, how much and how prolific uh, you know how prolific you are and how much you've written.
2: Do you have time to sleep? Yeah. <laughs> uh
1: Yes, because I, I feel like, uh, you know, one, I love sleep. So I <laughs> make time for it, uh, sometimes to my detriment. I, I, you know, I don't feel I, that's a thing is like, I don't feel like I've done that much. Um, and I guess it, it sounds that way when you rattle it off that like that. But um,
0: your, your publicist I did his, his or her job.
1: Right. I, I don't feel like I write as much as I should. Um, that I'm engaged in as many conversations as I should be. Um, that that I do as much speaking as as I possibly could. I feel really lazy. <laughs> like I feel like. Um, like there's so much more work that I could be doing but I'm just like eh, I'll get to it later <laughs> I wonder know?
2: I wonder if that's not just the resting state for someone who does as much as you do is <laughs> just to always think that you're not doing enough
1: maybe i mean yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I, you know, this is this is a problem uh, that I think most of us have is like looking at other people's output, looking at other people's careers, and and seeing uh, all that they do, and wondering if you're doing enough. Uh, I see people. I mean, I know people who, uh, you know, are on TV basically all day, but managed to write like two books in that in in a year, and then also. Have a grueling speaking schedule at colleges, and also find somehow find time to read four books during the week. Like it's something ridiculous. um, I'm just like I don't do any of that. Like um, if people were to just follow me around for day to day, I mean, I would you would see me looking at sneaker websites and uh, you know going out and and. going out drinking at night like that's that's where i feel like i spend most of my time uh i just uh when i do find the time or or focus i guess i i get um i get things out there that people pay attention to and i feel like that's that's really what it is and then that for me is what uh is more important than the sort of prolificness right like as like How much I'm writing or how many appearances I'm doing is, uh, uh, are they, am I doing the kind of work that I'm proud of, uh, that I will stand behind later? And that's, um, that's what I, that's what I stand on.
0: That's interesting. Um, I mean, it's something, you know, quality over quantity, but you also have quantity. Uh, So, I mean, let's just jump right into it. Uh, Kyle and I just finished the book um, and we both really loved it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And, and one of the major themes in the book is bearing witness. Um which is interesting to me uh and, and timely um because it's something that Elie Wiesel talked about a lot and he just passed away uh about a week ago. Um so I, I mean in in your context in the context of this book, what what do you think it means to bear witness?
1: Um for me it it's uh not shying away from a responsibility to engage um the most troubling aspects of our world. I think uh it's so it's easy to turn away. It's easy to assign the responsibility to someone else. Um it is it it's simply the act of uh looking the act of looking at the darkest corners uh of what we what we as humans have done to each other um and 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 illuminating that and and wrestling with why that is and asking questions about how we get better um how we establish a world of equality and justice and Freedom for all people, uh, dignity and respect for humanity, uh, built into the institutions that sustain us. Um, the idea of, of bearing witness is one that you know, and you know, in the book, uh, I, I, I think the, the first time I really mentioned that was uh, in the aftermath of uh, George Zimmerman killing Trayvon Martin, um, and it's simply the feeling that. You know, out of that, I had like a career highlight, whereas it's my first time being published at The Nation Uh, and the sort of sick feeling that I was capitalizing off of this, the death of a a young black man. Uh, But what's what's necessary uh, to remember is that we don't alter that reality by shying away from it. and there's going to be times where we we need. I mean, more often than not, there's just going to be times where we need to uh, put aside our our own desires for comfort uh, in order to to be engaged in uh, the work that's necessary for the creation of that that new world. Uh, that utopian dreaming that all of us do uh, how do we establish that how do we get there uh, and it's not going to be by uh, it's not going to happen simply because uh, that's like that's the progress of history it, That's that doesn't bear out um, what, what happens is people note injustice people note wrongs they they investigate them they question them uh and they lay them out for others to 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 read to consume to digest to wrestle with on their own to interrogate themselves uh and that's just it's it's inescapable um we we have to do that work because we don't live in that world just yet uh that world that we dream of that world that we hope for so, so bearing witness is simply the act of looking uh, and, and confronting um, because, because we want more.
2: Um, you mention in the book, when you're talking about your time at the Hampton uh, School newspaper, how your tendency towards activism sort of clashed with the idea that the newspaper had of objective journalism and how you thought it could be a strength. Um, what does that sort of context of approaching bearing witness uh bearing witness with change in mind bearing witness as an activist? how does that affect how you approach problems and how where do you have to be of your uh i guess of the way that you bear witness
1: yeah i I mean one I just the the whole idea of objective journalism is just uh it's a falsehood right the idea that we simply can present the information to people like the just the raw data um the the stories themselves uh without any contextualizing uh without any uh editorializing without any opinion that that simply will move people because uh because looking at the truth whatever truth that may be um is is enough for people to understand how dire the situation is. But what we don't rec- what we don't reckon with is the fact that everyone brings their own bias to each of these scripts. Um, that when, once you present that information, people twist it. People uh, without any context uh, for things, without any uh, editorializing, se- seem to gravitate toward the thing that makes the most sense to them based on their own experience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the idea that um, we can simply objectively reach the goal of altering people's consciousness um, is one that, that just doesn't bear out um, what we do. Is we we push we challenge we we engage in debate uh, we engage in debate on the basis of fact um, and I, I think that's important right like we can't lose sight of uh, we can't lose sight of the information gathering process and we can't allow ideology to uh, cause us to ignore things that may run counter to our ideas. We have to always be open to challenges. Um, But the problem with that is that um, the problem there is that uh, people believe that that means uh, coming to work um, without any ideology. It it means uh, coming to uh, the information gathering um as if you are some sort of spectator uh and then somehow that that is more uh of a noble pursuit than a sort of i guess where i would fall in an activist minded role uh in pursuing writing journalism uh whatever you, you want to call call it um but uh but for me the the words are the words are a vehicle um the words are a tool they are they're meant to do more than simply uh than to simply sketch the world as it is um i think presenting visions for a new world is just as vital uh and presenting that um having the information in hand about the world as it is is important uh, in that um, yeah so, so connecting that again to the idea of bearing witness um, is to say is to say not just to bear witness to the present um, but to uh, bear witness to a vision that hasn't come to bear yet
0: so You know, speaking of how important words are, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that intersectionality is a word that, you know, the mainstream is is very aware of. Um, So can you explain its meaning and how it fits into the broader context of your book?
1: Yeah, I think the problem, though, is that intersectionality is becoming a word that mainstream is becoming familiar with, but they've completely uh, undermined its, its, its meaning. Um, And it's just become another way to promote the idea of diversity versus the establishment of justice. Um, So when Kimberly Crenshaw lays out this idea of intersectionality, she's saying is that you cannot discount the fact that Uh, people of multiple marginalized identities using black women specifically here um, experience uh, forms of oppression that can't be neatly categorized as one or the other, that their experience uh, lends itself to like, again, speaking directly to black women uh, that the intersection of White supremacy and patriarchy is such that uh, it differentiates that experience from that of black men or white women, uh, in that those two operating together will will give you a different idea around uh, that 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 it colors the. The oppression differently, right? So, what white supremacy looks like, uh, how it shows up in black men's lives, will be different from the way that it shows up in black women's lives, by virtue of the fact that um, patriarchy and misogyny are also present. Patriarchy and misogyny will look different than that that it does for white women because of the presence of white supremacy and racism. So, taking in taking that into account, how do we um, how do we unpack um, those forms of oppression considering that they manifest differently for people at the intersection of different identities? Um, so if we're talking about racism, we're talking about white supremacy, but we only understand it in the context of black men's lives, and then we we assign to, like the idea of... Uh, driving while black, or we talk about uh, the drug war, we talk about mass incarceration, um, we talk about the inability of um, black men who do not have a criminal record to get a call back for a job as opposed to white men with a criminal record, right? So we we understand how racism operates in those cases. we don't then take account of, uh, is the ways in which black women experience will experience racism that will be, t- uh, slightly different. So when we talk about police, something like police violence, um, we, we can talk about, um, sexual violence as well, because, uh, it may not be that they get arrested at it may not be that black women get arrested at similar rates as black men and are incarcerated at similar rates, but they do experience sexualized violence at the hands of police in ways that black men would not. We can talk about mass incarceration, um, and that being one form, but uh there's the new book, uh Matthew Desmond, who uh interrogates the the whole notion of um housing and eviction in the way in which that comes to bear in black women's lives and we don't include that in the narrative because we just don't um we don't see the ways in which racism shows up in black women's lives so uh, all that to say um what what's happened with the term intersectionality uh, is it has become diluted. Uh, people who simply want to claim that they're more enlightened than others uh, have deployed that term not as uh, not to unpack the nuances of the ways in which these different forms of oppression show up in marginalized people's lives, but as a way to note that they um, they do they see uh these people so intersectional feminist means that somehow you um you know you have friends who are black feminists you have a friend who's a trans feminist uh that that you um you know that you that you are attuned to the fact that there are other issues out there that may escape the the mainstream but you're not attuned to uh Necessarily, what intersectionality is trying to capture in the lived experiences of those people. So, uh, as it becomes uh, more absorbed into a mainstream thought, it's become co opted uh, more and more uh, as a means of uh, perpetuating the idea of diversity and multiculturalism as a path toward uh, acceptance and tolerance. Not which are not the basis of an actual just world, so all of that to to sort of tie in to what you're saying about uh how important that was for the book um it it really is um the book doesn't exist if uh Kimberly Crenshaw doesn't lay out that that idea um because what what she forced uh so many of us to do with intersectionality is to interrogate our own position um, based on identity, um, based on the identity markers that bestow power and privilege upon us, right? So um, what the book is for me is an interrogation of black masculine identity um, from the perspective of myself as a cisgender heterosexual black man. Uh, what we've done over and over again in the history of the the literature to interrogate um, how white supremacy shows up in our lives. What we haven't done is to interrogate with uh, with equal uh, equal verve, uh, equal um, intensity is gender identity, uh, gender oppression, sexual identity, uh, and, and how, uh, black men, particularly from the position of cisgender and heterosexuality, uh, can have, uh, power and privilege bestowed upon them on the basis of those identities. Uh, and, and how they how that then is transformed through the experience of racism, right? So how we center cisgender heterosexual Black men in the narrative of racial justice uh, to the detriment of other people, uh, to to the further marginalization of folks who fall outside of that identity. Uh, what the book uh, for me is. Uh, Taking note of the own of the intersections of those identities, uh, and, and unpacking precisely the ways in which one can be complicit without knowing or complicit uh, on the basis of false information, um, on the basis of not wanting to to cede. Uh, any ground any any of the power and privilege um, and saying okay how how do we what's a blueprint for looking at that uh, and and really
2: well I was gonna say I do want to come back to complicity uh, in a few minutes but one thing you just touched on that is particularly interesting um, and specifically in relation to your book and your experience um You talked a lot, a little, well, you talked a little just then about how intersectionality becoming mainstream is sort of corrupting the message behind it. Um, And I think that's important to note, especially within the context of your book, because your book is so specific to your experiences and the intersectionality that you personally have experienced. How do you deal with uh, sort of the natural corruption of that message as it goes mainstream? How do you protect the main points of it, which is, you know, which specifically surround the nuances that come along with something like this, but mm-hmm. also clearly communicate out to the mainstream world in simple terms how do you how do you approach that problem
1: uh, by knowing that you can't escape it <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah uh, would what- it's it's what we do simply because i think um we're just lazy in our thinking. Uh, we want things to fit into a neat box. We want things to be binary um because that's the that's the easiest way for us to understand the world um even though it it's very clear that the that's not the way things operate. Um so knowing that going in simply means that uh you do the best you can in presenting the nuances you uh, and, and, and ensuring that you didn't miss a step uh and then when when asked and when challenged uh or or simply um, when people try to divert the conversation uh with you uh back to their simplistic understanding uh to not to not uh, to not get distracted by that, to always ensure that that the inclusion that you strive for uh is included in every answer to every question uh now, I can't control the conversation outside of when when I'm not there right like I can't be in everyone's home while they're reading and answer every question uh, that comes up or dictate the way in which people receive the book. Um, so I know that some of that simplifying will happen. Uh, but what I can do is to continue the work, uh, continue writing, uh, continue exploring those ideas, continue speaking, and continue to supplying the answers that don't betray my message um, now what a television producer does with a taped interview of me uh, that's that's their thing um, and if, if something were to come out that did betray my message, I would absolutely um, call it out and um, and engage in a new dialogue but uh, when it, whenever presented with the opportunity to to... To sort of uh, to challenge people uh, and and whisk them away from that binary thinking, from that uh, from that uh, that cooptation, um, it's incumbent upon uh, folks who whose ideas uh, are run counter to the status quo to remain vigilant there and not allow. Uh, in the spaces that they can control or have some form of control over uh, to not allow the conversation to get dumbed down.
0: So let's back up a little bit and and talk about the reception of your book. Um, it came out about a month ago, and there's been a really, really awesome critical response to it. Uh, you know, you've been covered in a lot of places. Um, but I have to say, I think that, you know, more than half of the places that have covered it are, uh, you know, a very particular audience. Um, Mm. so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is this the audience that you expected? And, uh, you know, and if so, like, are you upset that it's not, you know, more mainstream? Uh, Because, I mean, you, and and let me, you know, clarify you have some like really amazing pieces in, in like some of the best outlets out there. You know, you've been on like all the NPRs, New York Times. um, But you've also, you know, been covered, you know, extensively on like, you know, Ebony and Seven Scribes and that
1: kind of thing. Yeah. uh, It's not that. My hope is to to always be available to all of those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um whether or not they're they're like big New York Times or and get millions of uh, have millions of readers and, and get lots of clicks and or whatever, uh, or they're a more dedicated niche audience, uh like a Seven Scribes. Um my hope is to to be available to all of those different audiences um you know i and and i'm not going to like i want to sell as many books as possible right like i, I, like, um, I want to sell a million books um so so absolutely um bring on New York times and NPR and all of that, because that's where a million books are sold. Uh, but what's, what's more important to me is, um, the people who, who reach out, uh, and show me their like that they've given, the The book to like a, a younger brother or cousin or nephew or something. Uh, the people at my book signings who had me sign it for like they were like, yeah, this there's a 17 year old black boy in my life that I want to give this to, um, and in, in ensuring it it gets in those hands. Um, and that's what that's what's uh, more meaningful to me uh, mm-hmm. is that those are the folks who who are finding. Um, who are finding the, uh, who are receiving the book uh, in precisely the way that I envisioned uh, it's nice to have uh, to be like a New York Times book review editor's choice like I'm not going to act like I don't celebrate that uh, that's that's great um, it means but what it means for me uh, is more about the, the visibility of the book in yeah. uh, and the more visible that the book is, the more I, I know uh, and it's ensured to me that it will reach the the people that I'm, I'm hoping it will reach.
0: Well, it's funny because I was actually, uh, I was sitting outside on like Park Ave this afternoon, um, you know, reading the tail end of it. And, uh, you know, every single person that walked by just gave me a, a big smile. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I was reading, you know, <laughs> or if it's because of what I was reading. But it was uh it was a cool feeling, um
1: that's pretty awesome, yeah,
0: so uh, you did something well at, at the very least you have a really
2: dope book jacket, but at the m- <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, is the book more visible or less visible than you expected it to be
1: uh you know <laughs> the thing is uh. I I anticipated the first week to be bigger than it was um, but what happened was the unfortunate tragedy in Orlando um, the weekend before my my book release and the big press week so a lot of stuff uh, changed because of the news cycle which uh, obviously that takes precedence over the release of my book. Um, So So yeah, I thought it was going to. I thought at least the very the first week was going to be a lot bigger than it was. Um, But but I don't know. You know that said, you know when I went out to Seattle, a city I've never been to before, uh, and did an event at their their premier event spaces, town hall. um, Like over two hundred people showed up to this conversation. Right? Like wow. Congrats. I and that was the biggest crowd that I got. Like when the first event that we did um, here in New York City was with Melissa Harris Perry at the Barnes and Noble on Upper West Side, and there were over 200 people there. And that was with Melissa, right? Mm-hmm. I go to Seattle, uh, and you know the person interviewing was uh, a local journalist, Marcus Harris Green, um, but obviously not the same. Uh, cachet as Melissa Harris Perry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but still, like 250 people showed up. Uh, when I went to Portland the next day, it was like 150 at least, or something like that. So, so I, I don't know. It, it's it's like, uh, would I like it to be more visible? Um, would I like for it to have gotten the coverage that um, that? That like some some other books may have gotten that uh, you know, would I've liked to have been interviewed in in more uh, bigger outlets and, and things like that. I mean, yeah, sure. But uh, I did an interview with my friend Natasha Leonard at Fusion, and then someone at the DC event that I did at Politics and Prose came up to me and said, "I bought the book because of that." Mm-hmm. You know. So what I what I'm getting at is that. Uh, Yes, it would be I, – I I had something in mind or envisioned something like really big. Um, but I think that that's because every writer does <laughs> on a project uh, that they spend this much time with, uh, that they invest so much of themselves into. Uh, but what I have done has yielded exactly the results that I would hope for for this book is that it reached the people that – wanted it that needed it uh and and are um absorbing its uh its messages um and seeing themselves in it and passing it along you know and telling other people that they should they should read it
0: i think a lot of that is because you really you know are putting a voice to you know these stories that we're seeing on the news every day um Mm. and I'm curious how that feels, you know, putting yourself out there in the world for everybody to see and read.
1: (laughs) This is what I always say. uh, Writers are arrogant people, (laughs) 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 particularly someone that writes their opinion, right? Like the idea that people should read and listen to your opinion of the... Billions of people in the entire world. Um, I mean, and you can just scale that down to um, my audience is largely in the United States. I mean, out of three hundred million people, someone's supposed to listen to me. Um, so, so the idea of, of getting up and and saying that it takes a, a certain form of arrogance to say that you are you are worthy of that. Um, At the same time, uh, I think writers are also very deeply insecure people, which is what the the arrogance is masking uh, in that, and particularly those of us who uh, come from... uh, marginalized identities is that uh, we haven't been told since birth that our voices are worthy of being heard, uh, that we have something valuable to contribute to society, to the world of letters. Um, So wrestling with that every day um, with the blank page is tough, but particularly um, in a moment in which people are uh, paying attention to and want to hear from, or seem to want to hear from, those very marginalized people uh, who are in the news for various reasons, but generally because of some trauma, some tragedy that has been experienced, um, and to to uh, bear the responsibility of explaining your existence and making the case for your humanity, um, is exhausting. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, you, you feel like, why do I need to do this? I know that I am a human being, uh, with, uh, thoughts, feelings, fears, goals, desires, uh, that I am a person worthy of dignity and respect, uh that I'm a person worthy of justice uh yeah. but but to have to go out and make that case for you for other people who look like you um because they don't have access um becomes a hefty responsibility, but it's one that i I take on uh in part because uh that arrogance does fuel me um <laughs> But also because uh, the responsibility of history fuels me. The responsibility um, that that does come with oppression. Uh, we we can't shirk that. We have to. We have to continue to stand up. Uh, and and, it's, and so it's tough. It's certainly. Uh, you know, I had I disappeared to Puerto Rico for a week because I needed <laughs> to to recharge and reset. Um, you know, Puerto Rico is going through their own. Uh, crises, um, but, uh, getting away because, uh, it's tough to do. It is tough to, to wake up to every day. Um, but it's not something that care to, um, to deny or, or, or a responsibility that I don't want to carry.
2: I imagine this, uh, this book in particular might've caused a little bit more anxiety than one of your usual pieces because there's a decent portion of the book that relates to uh, I guess a coming clean about your own blind spots in your awareness and the growth process that you went through to develop your social awareness as you were growing up um, so I don't imagine you know the release of this book would be particularly comfortable but can you talk to us a little bit about the process of working through those moments after the fact and how you deal with you know, coming to terms with some of the stuff that you were not so aware of in the past,
1: yeah, um, and this is sort of the point of the book, right uh, is is that I mean, one of the the main ideas that I was trying to get to the book uh, is that even for those of us who believe that we are on the right side of history, that we are right thinking, you weren't always there. So there's, there's a, there's tends to be a frustration with people, uh, who, who we perceive as less enlightened, uh, or, 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 but not an account of the fact that we were once those people, um, that we also, Uh, went through a learning process and it was tough and it was not fun to do because you are being confronted with your own bigotry. Um, You're being confronted with your complicity within systems of oppression that you were not aware of, uh, particularly for me, from the position of being a black man, a cisgender heterosexual black man uh, that... The primacy of, uh, of that identity within uh, movements toward racial justice uh, has meant that um, understanding oneself as an oppressed person or understanding oneself as a marginalized person often means that you can... Um, Deny your role in the oppression of others on the basis of your own oppression. Um, So, taking stock of that uh, for me is 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 a crucial part of what social justice work has to look like, uh, because because we have to recognize those positions and we have to to tell ourselves that we are willing to divest uh, from. the power and privilege bestowed upon us in that in that space, but doing that interrogation uh, is not meant to be uh, a process of uh, like hating your past self. Uh, it's 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 more of a loving critique, right? Like you you note uh, where you've been, uh, you note the faults that you had. Um, and you open yourself up to uh, self critique. Um,
2: your view of your past, past self is very favorable compared to my view of my past self. <laughs> <laughs> I would never have called it a loving critique.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, no, that's. I, I don't think you should be mean to your past self, right? Like, I think. <laughs> You you should know he deserves it though. He does deserve <laughs> it. <laughs> he probably deserves it, right? Like all of our past selves probably deserve uh, a berating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that, that that does um that does the service that we want it to. I think um I think I think we can note our faults without um Without the feed, like without the bearing down of an uncrushable guilt that we once didn't know what we what we know now, uh, and, you know, you're not you're not going to you're not going to know everything at every stage of your life. Like that's what uh, the unraveling of life is. It is is a constant learning process. Um, so so yeah, you you know, I I say this to people. Quite often, uh now it's like, yeah, like eight years ago, uh I probably would have told you all of the transphobic jokes in the world because I didn't know any better, I didn't know the language around cisgender around trans, I didn't know what a trans experience was uh i didn't like I had no clue around that and all of that because the voices of uh trans people and gender non conforming people uh. Were presented to me in a way that they hadn't been before, and challenged me to think differently around these the issues of gender identity. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm not proud of the things that I once said. I'm not proud of the way that I once thought, but. Uh, but that's going to be the case—that that you're just not coming out of the womb knowing everything that you need to know, and particularly when we exist in a world in which all of these forms of oppression are ever present, uh, in in which um, they become the way in which we—the the language of oppression becomes the way in which we communicate to one another. Uh, it's going to be—it's going to be a long, long journey. Um, to To make it right, uh, but but being mean to your past self isn't going to put you in the position uh, of uh, of greater enlightenment. Uh, understanding how you got there, uh, understanding what forces um, produced that past self, uh, and and building the new. Um, institutions uh, and literature and culture to pr- to, to ensure that uh, the next generations don't have to go through that process mm-hmm. uh, is really where the work lies
0: I think it's really important that you know people recognize that what you uh, just said is true um, you know I can even speak from from my own you know experience in the last year that uh, you know I wouldn't have been able to tell you what intersectionality was uh, you know let alone half of the other things that we've talked about in this interview. Um, so how how wary are you of your memory as a guide for how things happened? Because, you know, you use a lot of examples and anecdotes in the book. Um, you know, I, I imagine that there were no fact checkers for that. Or maybe there <laughs> were, but, you know, how, how you know worried were you that you would misremember something?
1: i um, not too worried uh, just because... I mean I may have misremembered like the the exact uh wording of a conversation that I had with someone, but uh you know, the spirit of that conversation remains. Uh, and, and the 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 lesson that's drawn from it uh remains vital and, and important. Uh, well I was going to say
2: there's one specific instance in the book that you talk about, which is I think you're you're going to see a movie at IFC and it's the first time uh, you experience a man hitting on you. Yeah. And you relate the fact that you only realize afterwards what that look on his face meant after you had the context of uh, two relatively recent acts of violence in that area against that community. Um, so I think what Jeff is getting at is how how much are you aware of or how much are you wary of that future experience characterizing past experiences when you're trying to account for the, the awareness of those new blind spots?
1: Oh no, no. Um, that, that wasn't, uh, yeah, I I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, but no, that particular experience, no, that wasn't, uh, something that I established later. That was something that, uh, very much of that time I realized exactly how that that how that um came came out to oh, to him uh what that experience was like for him and how jarring that was for me to have that realization. Um what but, but yes, the, the idea of um transposing some sort of uh enlightenment onto your past self that wasn't actually there. Um in a in a sort of uh building of a self mythology um is tempting for for a writer because you are getting to write your own story um but it's not honest um it's not and it's not the the way that the process unfolds um and so so it's like um like uh, there there are some other instances like uh traveling to Ferguson and experiencing what that was like on the ground there uh, in the context of sort of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and reconciling the fact that uh, as all of these black women were doing this uh, intense emotional, intellectual, and physical labor in service of uh, ending police violence, um, they were their narratives were being dismissed around their own experiences of violence. Um, and that's not something that, uh, and then for me, like connecting that back to my own history, uh, of, uh, at the Hampton Script in college, and my girlfriend at the time, Leslie, and the the amount of emotional intellectual labor she did to support me through everything that I was going through there. Now, I didn't have that context then for that, but I did think about it later. with everything that that is that I've learned and everything that I experienced, particularly in that moment uh, in Ferguson, uh, so no, I did. I wouldn't have transposed that thinking onto myself at 20 um, because I didn't have that. I did not mm-hmm. have that basis of understanding. Uh, uh, I hadn't been challenged in that way just yet. Um, so,
0: some something that really jumped out at me was that you cover a ton of topics that. You know a lot of people don't typically think of when they're considering the black lives matter movement uh you know when you do it within the construct of of all these cultural moments like you know for example comparing lebron and michael jordan uh and and their you know uh their politics uh as these you know you know uh black um l- luminaries in the sports world uh so is this something that you explore in your journalism as well and and, you know if yes or no why why did you go into so much detail in like the essays that are you know throughout the book
1: yeah um because it's because the book is an exploration of black male identity um and the public lives of black men are certainly uh consumed and dictated through um the worlds of sports and entertainment like that's that's uh uh so so to to not wrestle with that is to to um to deny one one aspect of, or a, a big aspect of what it is in uh determining one's identity um and particularly like talking about uh lebron uh what black male sports figure has been bigger than lebron for the millennial generation uh he he sort of sits atop that um uh, and and he he's very much uh representative of the ethos of a generation uh whether I agree with it wholeheartedly or not um he has a desire uh for his own self aggrandizement right He wants to be the greatest basketball player to ever live. He wants to be uh the richest uh man in the world or richest sports figure in the world. Uh, but at at the same time he feels a responsibility uh to to his community that raised him uh to to the people that support him now uh to engage in the politics of the day uh and he's doing it and he's he's establishing a different model for what it is to be a professional athlete to be a highly visible black man uh, in that's in in the space that he occupies. And he did it in a way that uh, ran counter to the previous uh, example that had been set in, the, in the, the model that had been followed by so many uh, in Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan chose a different path. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's important because, uh, you know, the construction of, Uh, a black male identity uh, comes from an engagement with the visibility of those figures uh, for so many of us. Now it doesn't for everyone, but it is, it is large. It is huge. It's uh, it looms over so many different conversations that we have about black male life. Uh, So, so it was necessary to get into Kanye West and Dave Chappelle and Frank Ocean and, all of these other, these other figures uh, of, of, of pop culture, mm-hmm. uh, because, cause that, that that's, um, I didn't want to, I don't want to leave out pieces of black male life, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, that are highly important and highly visible to focus in on things that are comfortable and familiar to people. Um, this, this is an exploration of all of it, or as much of it as I could fit into 200. Uh,
0: I, I think it certainly helped with, you know, with my understanding of the book and the timeline that it fit into. Um, you know, just because those were those are pieces that are relatable to pretty much anyone who's reading this. Uh, mm. so, so, I mean, I, I guess the question at the heart of the book is, you know, how does one learn to be a black man in America? And... I mean, yeah you you answer that throughout but I'm wondering if you do you have like a cookie cutter answer um you know <laughs> like a sound bite
1: No I, I don't have a sound bite which is maybe why I don't have as many TV interviews <laughs> 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 um, No I mean I, you know the, the 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 neatest answer that I could give uh would just be that you learn. Oh uh, well, I, I think you know. You, how do you learn to be a black man in America? Um, you learn by being a black man in America, uh, and that is going to come with a variety of challenges that you don't anticipate. There are going to be scripts presented to you that you can choose to follow or not follow. There are going to be many questions that that are required uh, that are going to require an answer um, on the basis of a history that you may or may not be aware of, Uh, and it's up to you to to choose to to engage that or or not, Um, but but just know that the world has already written a script for you. Um, so, so essentially, um, just beware.
2: Um, I know the book just came out, and by just came out, I mean last month as of this recording. But is there any... So you mentioned that you had to squeeze it into 200 pages, and it makes me wonder if there was anything you left on the cutting room floor uh, that you maybe wish you didn't have, or maybe wish you hadn't, uh, with the benefit of a month of hindsight, or is there anything else that you're looking back now wishing you had included in the book?
1: Yeah. Um, there are some things that, that I think I, I just, um, there's some points that I made and some some ideas or, or figures that I introduced that I wish I would have uh, delved into more, uh, particularly, I think I, I uh, gave short shrift to just what the impact of our discussions, uh, our national discussions around uh, Chris Brown uh, and his violence against Rihanna uh, and... Bill Cosby and his long legacy of sexual violence. Um, I sort of mentioned them offhandedly uh, in the in the in chapter four and sort of the wrap up um, as talking about the the experiences of Black women uh, and the violence that they face at the hands of Black men and uh, the idea of then still. Uh, showing up to protect black men from the the scourge and ravages of uh white supremacy and racism but uh I think that that could have been expanded a- upon more uh, and and really get into uh the lessons around uh domination and violence towards women uh and also uh Forms of sexual entitlement and and how that manifests in in forms of violence, uh, and then the ways in which uh, publicly uh, the narrative around black male violence towards uh, towards women uh, within black communities uh, often does a disservice to the experiences of of black women ask them to be silent or ask them ask forgiveness of them uh, in ways that we don't ask black men to forgive the same systems or give this forgive the systems that uh, perpetuate violence against them um, there's there's a lot more there that i that i could have gone into and and maybe wish i i, I did um, I surprised myself a little bit by not speaking as much about uh, the rapper who has had uh, maybe more influence on me than uh, anyone. And, like, I don't talk about Jay-Z much at all uh, and the the way in which his uh, politics come to bear. But I think um, part of that is that... uh, in chapter three, I think the the tension that I would have discussed with Jay Z comes comes out with the discussion of Dave Chappelle and LeBron James. All of the ways in which that that I would have addressed um, Jay Z's um, representational politics, uh, but artistic as well as artistic choices, um, uh, all all those ideas are, are represented. So I didn't uh, really go into, to him. Uh, if that was I mean, the
2: next book that you wrote, that? I would read that.
1: <laughs> What's that?
2: I said, if that was the next book that you wrote, I would absolutely read that. What about Jay-Z? I'm a big fan of Jay-Z. I, I, <laughs> I would uh, read a book about the
0: politics of hip hop. I hip-hop. would love to
2: hear your take on his, uh, I mean, on the way he's lived his life. It would be incredibly. <laughs> uh
1: Maybe, maybe we'll, maybe I'll think about that if I can get a sit down with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: um, so we're at the point now in the show where we would typically delve into uh, the story that you've struggled to tell, and I'm hoping that maybe you know the last hour or so has jarred something loose, or there's a part of the book that you could delve into for us uh, that you really struggled with or that was just something that you maybe were dealing with for the first time while you were writing it in the process of dealing with that.
1: Yeah. Um, it wasn't the first time I was dealing with it, but I did, uh, and find this difficult and sort of the way in which to, to strike this balance, um, saying earlier, present a, a loving critique. Right. And this wasn't even, uh, this wasn't of myself, but, uh, you know, the la- like throughout the chapter, um, my father shows th- throughout the book, my father shows up, right? Um, and you get glimpses of sort of a clash of ideology happening, a uh, clash of personalities happening. But it really comes out in in chapter seven when I'm uh, really discussing the concept or the um, what we what we talk about when we talk about black fatherhood. Um, but and it was uh, it was tough to know where to push and where to pull there um, where to lend the understanding that I've come to with regards to how he came to the lessons he tried to impart on me um, and my disagreement with those those lessons uh, with my my new understanding with the uh, with the tension that remains in our relationship, how much of that to to reveal, how much to give to an audience um, without feeling like I was demonizing him, without feeling like I was uh, coming at it in a way that um, disrespected him and what he had done in my life and what he made possible for me. Uh, that, was, that was a really... Um, it wasn't... It was never easy. I mean, the whole every story I think is a struggle to tell, but that one in particular, just because I didn't want to come across as bashing him, mm-hmm. uh, but being very critical, uh, because I think uh, that's the primary for me. It's like uh, growing up. That's the primary influence on that qu- question of how do you learn. Uh, here is here is an example. Right. Uh, here is uh, the person responsible for uh caring for me or is a person responsible for providing and making sure that i stay alive and like uh, he's he's doing that work he he's answering that question for me by virtue of his existence in my life um
2: this is the one area i was th- that i had in mind when i was asking about how you deal with uh characterizing your own past because i thought of myself and my father and how i don't know if i could ever trust my memory to give me an accurate representation of how our relationship developed
1: Mm. yeah i you know i could tell the story from my perspective uh and you know he would tell the story from his own perspective Mm -hmm. and you you would get um two differing versions of, of of what that looked like um But, but here, um, I've, I've wrestled with these memories, uh, with these clashes all of my life, Mm. uh, things that maybe my father doesn't even remember, right? Even instances that, that, uh, he, that were routine or everyday for him that had a profound impact on me that he would not, uh, that he wouldn't have answers for because it just didn't strike him in that time that it was meaningful, but was very meaningful for me and something that I needed to, to talk about and, and, and uh, address for myself uh, and find why that tension existed. Um, Doing that work uh, and recalling that uh, and telling the story from my my perspective, I don't feel um, as a betrayal to, memory or the story itself, but, uh, is just a way in which every human being, uh, interprets their experience. Uh, and so this is my interpretation. Am I, am I certain that I got it 100% correct? Uh, no, Uh, but again, I I don't think, uh, anyone ever gets anything 100% correct.
0: Uh, what was it like writing, about all of these thoughts that, you know, you presumably had never shared with your father prior to this book, knowing that he was probably going to read it.
1: I actually figured that he wouldn't read it (laughs) Uh, in part because I I mean, not like because he thought he was going to find something in there about himself that he was going to get mad about, which my my dad's not a big reader. Um, I I don't know the last time he like actually sat down and read a whole book. Um, He bought 10 copies of my book. So shout out to him for that. (laughs) But um, I, I don't know how much of he's actually read. I don't know how much any of my family has read of the book. Um,
0: See, that's, and fu- that's not funny.
1: really interested in finding out
0: <laughs> with, with with this podcast we i mean, I don't know so much about Kyle, but I reference my family all the time, and um, I do it because I know that they're not gonna listen <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel you on that, but I mean at the back of your mind, you had to at least you know think that there was a chance, so yeah. as, assume he does read it all you know,
1: no and certainly and but the thing is it's not anything uh, for the most part is uh the stuff about me and him not anything that we hadn't discussed before uh when we discussed it it was like high emotion high tension uh crying and yelling and stuff like that happening um but uh but yeah it, it it's things that uh we've had it out about um and, and we we've had our differences uh and and he knows where I stand on. A lot of the things that that he taught me or, or tried to lessons he tried to impart on me. I think there's some some instances like uh, in the chapter about sexuality. Like he, I don't even know if he remembers that, right? Like the, when he making <laughs> yeah. those comments about mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain and cowboys and being gay and using the, that slur. I'm not sure if he remembers that. I, I have no I have no idea. But it had a really big impact on me um, in the way in which I viewed. Uh, how how one performed masculinity Mm -hmm. uh and 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 so maybe he maybe he does read the book and maybe that that memory comes back to him and maybe he has to think differently about uh the way in which he engaged me and my brother around these things and uh the blind spots that he had and that's a and it's the point of the book is is that uh is noting that we all do have an impact and, and think. And then the way in which we engage the world uh, can be different, and we can um, we can represent uh, our highest ideals if we're willing to interrogate uh, the past selves that did not live up mm-hmm. to those things.
0: I thought that was that was one of the stronger chapters in the book as well. Um, you know, both the the experience with, with him meeting Justin, your roommate at the time and, and those comments. Um, I mean, it was eye opening because everybody has had one of those experiences. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like I say in the, in the book, like, uh, you know, for, for, you know, homophobia is the social lubricant for men so often. And then we, we don't, uh, unpack just like how, how disparaging our, our language is, uh, in the way in which we relate to one another, and that performance of a proper masculinity, uh, and my father was doing that. He was doing what he knew how to do. He was uh, engaging in the behavior that he thought was um, bonding with his son. Uh, and but for me, uh, I'd I'd come to different understandings of the ways in which that that works and what the meaning of those words were and what the meaning of the, those questions were and those hushed tones about, uh, is he gay or, you know, like, and that's that's part that, I mean, it's the clash of generations and ideology, uh, and, and it's important to, to note, um, that, you know, we don't have to fall back on that, that, that we can, um, we can document the shortcomings of the people in our lives. We can document our own shortcomings without feeling like we are inferior people.
2: I wonder if we're not all doomed to experience this moment on some level uh, with future generations of either our close relations or our actual children. <laughs> <laughs> if someday they won't all look back and wonder how we were such terrible people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I think that that's, uh, that's inevitable. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I always look at that scene in The Hunger Games where you know everybody's wearing makeup and dresses, and like the woman is transformed into a cat, and it's the most normal thing on the planet for you know everybody who's there. And to us it just seems so odd, and I just <laughs> I just think that that's our future. And you know, like someday we're gonna be making fun of one another because we're dressed up as cats or something.
2: <laughs> there is one last so. thing I wanted to ask you about, Michael. Uh, yeah. That it seemed like it was important for you in the book. There's a commitment to use the word "radical" when you're describing, in particular, young people of color who are pushing for things in the black, but uh, in the specifically, you use Black Lives Matter, but people who are pushing for awareness of transphobia, homophobia, and misogyny. And I wanted to ask you about the commitment to that word, uh, particularly nowadays when it tends to bear a different connotation.
1: Um, in part of it, it's a it's a rescue mission of that. Um, of, of radical as uh, a proper and legitimate form of engagement in politics uh, because I don't believe uh, that uh, progressive uh, reflects i don't believe that that reflects um the the basis of my understanding, or the rapidity with which I seek change, right? And also, you know, radical. Uh, you know, as Angela Davis will always uh, remind us, is as simply uh, to address things at the root, uh, and and to to know what the root causes of every, of all of these different. Uh, to tackle these issues at the root of things, uh to not get bogged down in the the symptoms of the disease, uh to always is always to, to drill down and, and find uh the cause. Um so that's that's a that's at the heart of it. Um but also uh noting that what 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 we're seeking is not uh the the American progressivism, the American progress that uh, we simply believe is inevitable, that will come uh, by virtue of the wheels of history continuing to continue into turn. Um, that radical transformation, uh, radical reimagining of our democracy, of our economy, of our systems of education, healthcare, justice, only come um, by noting uh, by by moving uh, the experiences uh, and stories of the most marginalized to the center, uh, and undoing the damage that has been done by by centuries of these uh, systems perpetuating themselves and doing the work of their their own maintenance uh, that. That a, a liberal or progressive critique uh, is insufficient that only through a radicalism do we uh, deal with not just uh, not just the symptoms and not just papering over uh, the issues, uh, not just allowing the system, not just massaging around the edges of oppression. But uh, to, to uproot, undo those systems, to dismantle those systems, uh, I think only uh, radical is sufficient in describing uh, what the desire is.
0: Michael, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Uh, no,
1: thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Uh, where can we find you online?
1: Uh, at Michael Smith M-Y-C-H-A-L on Twitter uh, it's really important I don't even answer emails when they uh, come in and they spell my name in the traditional Michael way uh, <laughs> just <laughs> because I find that disrespectful <laughs> especially when when my name is uh, is my email address you know it's right there for you um, so so there's there's that okay. on Twitter Michael Smith M-Y-C-H-A-L uh, on instagram michael denzel uh on facebook you look up michael denzel smith and then, not really active on snapchat to the point that i don't even know what my snapchat name is it's probably <laughs> michael smith or michael denzel one of those but i don't know how to use snapchat and that's the thing that makes me feel most old in the world
0: oh you gotta get um, on that <laughs>
1: um you know, uh, the nation.com houses much of my writing, uh, but you can keep up with it, uh, by following me on Twitter, following me on Facebook. Uh, you can find the book wherever books are sold, amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, Indiebound, whatever bookstore you like shopping at, uh, invisible man
0: got the whole world watching
1: Invisible man got the whole world watching, uh, I might be in your city. Who knows? (laughs) Um, (laughs) We'll we'll,
0: we'll put all this stuff up on the website and make sure our listeners know where to find you. Yes, Uh, indeed. So again, thank you so much for joining us. This was a ton of fun. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of writers who don't write. That was Michael Denzel Smith, author of invisible man. Got the whole world watching. You can find us online at www.podcast.com or on Tiny Letters, SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, We hope you join us next week for another choice guest. And also thank you to Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library, who did the music at the top and the bottom of the hour.